Hello, folks. Dr. Maurice Selby here, medical director, producer, and co-host of Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM and the Health in Harlem podcast. While we strive to bring you the most up-to-date, reliable, evidence-based information to help you live the healthiest life possible, this show does not substitute for an evaluation by a trained and licensed medical professional. It is highly recommended that any advice or recommendations on medications, treatments, nutrition, fitness, preventive services, etc. be implemented under the guidance and supervision of your primary medical provider or appropriate specialist. With that said, we hope that you enjoy and learn from our program, and please be sure to let us know how we can best serve you in future shows. audience. My name is Maurice Selby and you are listening to Health in Harlem on WHCR 90.3 FM New York, the voice of Harlem and the Health in Harlem podcast featured on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. We're pretty much everywhere, ladies and gentlemen. And it is National Men's Health Week. This week, June 14th through June 20th, celebrates men And specifically, right, we're talking about the health of men in this country and actually around the world. This is also International uh, Men's Health Week and really just focusing on prevention, ladies and gentlemen. That is probably the biggest word that we really should hone in on when we talk about the health of men in this country and around the world. And so that's what we'll be talking about on this program. But before we get there, I just want to do some updates. Now, we have 147.8 million people in the United States fully vaccinated. That is 53% of the population with at least one dose. And then as far as fully vaccinated individuals, we have 44.5%. And one area where I really think we need to just look at uh, very closely is the population greater than the age of 65 years of age, 87.1% that have at least one dose in that age group. And then we have 76.8% that are fully vaccinated that are 65 and older. And one thing that we've been talking about consistently on this program week in, week out is the trend that we see as far as the hospitalization rates and death rates falling tremendously, especially in those groups that have high vaccination rates. So when we look at that population that is 65 years of age and older, we're not seeing them in the hospital anymore with complications from SARS-CoV-2 and COVID-19. We are seeing, unfortunately, younger individuals and even individuals without significant medical problems or you know, the previous high risk groups that we were really seeing have complications. And what we are seeing is that it's young, unvaccinated individuals that are unfortunately being hospitalized and having complications from COVID. We've recently surpassed that 600,000 mark as far as the number of deaths attributed to COVID-19. And in this latest group, right, since the sort of arrival of these vaccinations, the emergency use authorization of the Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson vaccines, a large chunk of that number that put us over 600,000, a a large number of those deaths are in individuals that have not been vaccinated. And so I say all of that to say, right, one, to give you an update on where we are as far as the vaccination campaign here in the United States, uh, but also I don't think we can really have a conversation talking about men's health if this is not something that is on the table, right? So just to preface everything that we're going to get into, if we want to talk about men's health and National Men's Health Awareness Week, then we have to think about these vaccines uh, because we're still in the midst of this crisis, this pandemic with COVID, and this is something that is really panning out to be uh, very effective 
as far as the vaccines, but also very safe. And just another reason to really consider vaccination for those that have not been vaccinated yet, we have to talk about the B1617.2 variant. This is the variant that was first discovered in India this February 2021. And I think everybody is pretty much aware of the devastation that this variant caused over in India. And this is something that is, we are seeing spreading essentially throughout the world. Uh, it is here in the continental United States. And so there's fears with this one because not only is it potentially more infectious, so more contagious, but also individuals are seeing more severe disease with this, more severe illness for individuals that are infected with this particular variant. And so this is, again, a race against time. We talked about the B117 variant. We talked about the P1 variant uh, that originated in Brazil, right? And this is just another variant to add to the mix that if we don't get these vaccination rates up higher, we are going to continue to see variants like this develop that are potentially more contagious and potentially more deadly. The good news in all of this is that the current line of vaccines that are out there, they still seem to be particularly effective at preventing illness from this particular variant, the B16172 variant. And so just another reason to really think about this, ladies and gentlemen, uh, rolling up your sleeves if you have not done so already. And for the men out there, right, as we begin to get into our discussion about National Men's Health Week, this is something that I want you to, to think about, right? As we talk about everything going forward that we're going to get into, this is among those things that we must consider as men, men out there, as fathers, as uncles, as brothers. We need to think about this for ourselves and also for our families, right? Because we want to be there. If we're going to talk about health and taking care of ourselves so that we can enjoy life and enjoy our family, our friends, to leave a legacy on this planet, right, to continue, then we have to talk about vaccination against COVID-19. And so I'll leave it at that. You can ponder that. If you have any questions, you can always hit us up at Health in Harlem. You can either leave a comment on any of our Facebook pages or Instagram or Twitter accounts. You can also Check out our website on Podbean, our podcast website, and you can leave your question, comment, or concern there. And we would be glad to address it. Okay? So I'll leave it at that, ladies and gentlemen. And let's just talk about Father's Day. It's here, and we celebrate those fathers out there, those father figures, the mentors, and really all the men out there that are important to us. And these men inspire us. They take care of their families alongside their spouses or even by themselves. They are part of support systems. They work to keep us safe and healthy. Let's just celebrate men, right? Their lives. They are dear to us. So how do we keep them around? That's the big question. We have to talk about the health of these special people in our lives because men are dying in this country at rates that are greater than their female counterparts. And this is especially true as we get older, right? And I say we because I'm a man, and so I'm very aware of this, and I think it's really important that all of us are aware of this. We are dying. Now, real quick, before we move on forward, right? Um, I do want to say that, ladies and gentlemen, this is another, another Talking Head episode. This will be Maurice Donovan Selby, M.D., talking to you about men's health this entire episode all alone and I can't promise that it won't take the preachy tone or the lecture tone I will try my best not to have it take that tone but it's me myself in the flesh with you uh, in this conversation ladies and gentlemen and I say conversation because I know that you are going to hit me up with questions comments or concerns about 
this program uh, so that we can have a dialogue going forward. But it will be just me uh, going into this. And so when we talk about the health right of men in this country, when we look at these death rates and especially, as we said, uh, in older groups, right, we have 49 percent of the population in this country that comprise men. But when we start to look at age groups greater than 65 years of age, we see that 57 percent of them uh, become women. Right. There's 50 percent, 57 percent of the population greater than uh, 60 five years of age that are just women, right? And so what is happening where we start to see that, that balance sort of change? And this even gets worse as we go forward. Over age 80 years, there are half as many males as females and greater than 80% of people aged greater than 100 years are female, right? So where are the men going? Unfortunately, they're going to the grave. And there's many different reasons for this, or at least postulated or theorized reasons for this. There are some biological explanations, such as differences in genes, hormones, differences in immunity between men and women. And this actually begins to make some sense when you factor in the fact that the United Nations found that women outlive men in nearly all of the 200 countries that it monitors health outcomes for. However, in a few countries, this is not the case. Right. And we must begin to wonder what cultural or societal factors account for this longevity gap. Now, some other explanations that might uh, account for this include advances in maternal mortality and fertility. And especially when we talk about dealing with infectious diseases early in the 20th century, we've talked about on this program sort of the challenges, right? The potential complications that mothers can experience during uh, pregnancy, even during delivery and after, right? And we even touched upon that, especially for black women. But when we see, right, when those problems are addressed, women have better outcomes, they live longer. Also, for various reasons, when it came to infectious diseases, women had worse outcomes, were more likely sometimes to become uh, infected from some of these organisms. And, and that's why by dealing with infectious diseases, we see a significant improvement in longevity for female populations in the 20th century. And so those are some other possible explanations for what we see as far as this longevity gap. But then again, when we look closer, there are some things that just don't seem to make sense and this includes something called the morbidity mortality paradox. It's essentially a trend where in modern high income countries, although women tend to live longer, they suffer more disability, more chronic illness, such as Alzheimer's disease, and overall just have poorer health than men. But yet again, when we look at the data as far as mortality rates, and when we look at the ages at which people uh, pass on, then we see that women still live longer, right? Even with a quote unquote poorer health status, um, at least by our traditional measures, right? Especially when we talk about things like disability, the need for long term care and assistance. Although women seem to have more health challenges and even poorer functional status in later ages. They are living longer, right? And so we have to really look close and try to understand and figure out what it is that is leaving men behind. I think it really forces us to even ask, what is health, right? What do we consider health? What do we consider a healthy lifestyle? And this might help us understand why men are dying at much earlier ages than women. And so let's let's transition here and talk about what are these things that are killing men, right? What are the killers of men, um, especially here in this country in the United States? Well, number one, and this is really all throughout the, the developed world, heart disease is number one. Here in the United States, it accounts for 24.2% of deaths amongst men. Next, we have cancer at 22.5%. 
We have accidents and trauma at 7.4%. We have chronic lower respiratory illnesses at 5.2%. And then we have stroke at number five. Now we're going to focus on the top five in this conversation. Real quick, I'll list the uh, top 10, right? So diabetes at number six, Alzheimer's at number seven. We have suicide at number eight. And there's chronic liver disease at number nine and number 10, chronic kidney disease. But we're going to focus on the top five because dealing with these top five killers, the heart disease, the cancer, the accidents and trauma, the chronic lower respiratory illnesses and stroke by dealing with those five, it forces us to address some of the issues with the other five on the list, right? And essentially what it comes down to is biology versus biography. While there are some inherent biological factors that might make men more susceptible to death than females, and we kind of touched upon some of them uh, earlier as far as our genes, some of the hormones that we have, and even our immunity, right, and how we respond to infectious diseases. But a, a real big thing that we need to focus on is really how we live our lives, right? While there are some of these biological factors that we cannot control, there are many factors that arise from how we men live our lives. Men are more likely to smoke or drink. These are facts, ladies and gentlemen, right? So this is not arguable, not debatable, um, no matter where you look or get your data, right, uh, or alternative facts. Well, there's no alternative. This is the truth. So we are more likely to smoke or drink. We are more likely to make unhealthy or risky choices. And we are more likely to forego regular medical care and or follow up. And so right there, that kind of answers some of our posited question right, as far as what might, uh, might be accountable for this longevity gap, well, we kind of answered the question to a degree. Women are less likely to drink or smoke. Women are more likely to make healthier decisions and take less risks. They are also more likely to get regular medical care and follow-up. Therefore, when they are ill, they are diagnosed with a chronic illness, they are more likely to do better and even potentially live longer because those problems are being taken care of actively. They were discovered during those regular medical checkups. They have maybe a buffer right between uh, them developing a disease and having more severe complications because they have had a healthier lifestyle to a degree. Um, or at least in, in many cases, compared to their male counterparts, right? So this, this answers some of the question, and it's really some of the things that I want us to focus on in this conversation going forward, okay? So just remember those three biographical facts about men and the top five killers of men begin to make a lot of sense. And so before we move on, you probably hear Zora in the background um, she is with me here recording. So you might hear some little noises, some sounds. She tries to chime in every now and then, reaching for my headphones as I'm talking. So you might hear me like going in and out of the mic. But that's all Zora. She's right here with me. And um, this is what we do. This is a, a daddy daughter collaboration. And also, we want to shout out the Mani girl. And Mani right now is in camp. So hopefully, you are out there enjoying yourself to the fullest right now, Monty girl. And we just want to make sure that we acknowledge you. We, yes, you are part of the Health in Harlem team as well. And I know she would be really upset if she heard me uh, just now and we didn't shout you out. So love you, Monty. And we're going to continue with our conversation. So according to Dr. Louise Aronson, a professor of geriatrics and the author of Elderhood, the structure of our healthcare system doesn't help things as it is a system that incentivizes treatment of the sick rather than prevention of disease. And his prescription for this, aside from drastically reforming our healthcare system, right? Um, his prescription is for men to, for the time being, we have to take our health into our own hands. And 
you can take this literally, right, by thinking about getting more exercise, eating more fresh fruits and vegetables, whole grains, lean meats and fish, uh, less processed foods, right? So literally taking our hands and getting them dirty with the food, right? Preparing our food, um, using fresh ingredients. Um, as we said, whole grains, whole fruits, vegetables. Uh, these will do immensely in terms of contributing to our overall health and being able to sustain, sustain a healthy, happy lifestyle. Other big things, remaining socially engaged, among other things. And these are things that we really must make happen, right? We must make these priorities in our lives. And I'm going to tell you why as we get into some sort of these complications that take us off of this planet, you will begin to understand why that is the prescription. That is the prescription going forward. So let's just get into heart disease. The number one killer of men, really the number one killer of all people, men and women across the known world. Heart disease, leading cause of death for men, women, people of most racial and ethnic groups in the United States. One person dies every 36 seconds of complications related to cardiovascular disease. About 655,000 Americans die from heart disease each year. So that's one in every four deaths. Um, in any given calendar year, uh, except for what we're dealing with with the pandemic right now, um, that was accounted for essentially 25% of deaths in any given year prior to COVID. And heart disease costs the United States about $219 billion each year. And this includes the cost of health care services, medicines, and especially lost productivity attributed to death of individuals. Right. So big deal when we talk about heart disease, and I think one thing that we, under, we really need to understand is that we're not just talking about the heart, and we must think about cardiovascular disease when we talk about heart disease. And this includes stroke. Cardiovascular disease includes stroke, and this is why sort of that number one and number four killer kind of go, number five killer kind of go hand in hand, because this is disease of the cardiovascular system. Another important point to understand is that we're not just talking about heart attacks and brain, brain attacks, aka strokes, when we talk about cardiovascular disease, but we're also talking about peripheral, peripheral vascular disease, which is included and can result in significant morbidity and even mortality. This ranges from something called claudication, where essentially an extremity or a limb is not getting enough blood supply because those arteries are clogged up. Uh, but it also accounts for infections related to poor circulations, even complications related to the big blood vessel in your chest and, and or the abdomen, the aorta, right? Tearing apart something called an aortic dissection uh, or rupturing following a gradual enlargement of that blood vessel uh, over many years, especially in the abdomen. Um, something called an abdominal aortic aneurysm, which can rupture, right? And we definitely see this in older individuals, individuals that have a lot of the risk factors for heart disease and cardiovascular disease suffer this complication. So I'm not trying to scare you. I'm just putting it out there that these are some of the complications that we are worried about. It's not just the heart attacks. It's not just the strokes, but cardiovascular disease as a whole is something that is killing and debilitating men in this country and around the world. To further put things into perspective, especially from a quality of life standpoint, because I think we have those individuals out there, those, you know, hardcore cynics, the ones that sort of deny the burden of this disease when we talk about heart disease and cardiovascular disease, right? To put this further into context, right? Let's talk about your sex life. <laughs> Cardiovascular disease can impact your sex life as well. Um, and I say this because that is a motivator, ladies and gentlemen, right? We all know we're going to leave this earth. And so you do have those people out there. Well, well I'm going to die anyway, right? So I'm going to do what I want on this planet because my day will come and I'm going to enjoy myself. Fair enough. You have 
a point. We, it is inevitable, right? We're all going to leave this earth um, and move on to our afterlives at some point. That is a fact. There's no arguing that. However, I do want you to understand that cardiovascular disease will impact you in some other way, shape, or form, and even potentially interfere with you enjoying your life right to the very end. And so everything from impotence, right, to developing angina or chest pain during intercourse due to coronary artery disease, right, that's fair game. Those are complications that can arise from cardiovascular disease, right? It's not just the heart attacks. As I said, it's not just the strokes. Um, And even if you survive those things, we're talking about serious disability uh, to you. So if you don't pass away, right, you might be wheelchair bound. You might not be able to talk properly again if you've had a a pretty significant stroke. Um, When we talk about heart attacks, individuals might have heart failure resulting from that, which can limit everything from your ability to do exercise, your ability to work, especially if you are a person, right, where you do um, a good amount of strenuous activity for your profession, it could affect your income. It could hit your pocket. Not only those healthcare expenses, but as we said, lost productivity from not being able to carry out your job or your responsibility so that you can make money for yourself and your family. These are real complications of cardiovascular disease. Okay. And so let's talk about the risk factors, right? Um, High blood pressure being chief among them. According to the CDC, 51.9% of men over the age of 20 have hypertension or this high blood pressure. We talk about diabetes, which we've talked about numerous times on this show. Another major risk factor for heart disease and cardiovascular disease, high cholesterol, sedentary lifestyles, obesity. Um, just want to stop there because 40, right, according to the CDC, 40.5% of men over the age of 20 that are dealing with obesity. And then we need to talk about the smoking, the alcohol use, recreational drug use, and even stress. So just being a man trying to right, uh, take care of your responsibilities, trying to support your family, it could be stressful. So you already got one risk factor against you. I mean, this is something that I deal with, you know, on a daily basis, just dealing with Christine, uh, Imani and Zora, which as much as I love them, (laughs) they can definitely bring a good amount of stress to things sometimes. Um, And I wouldn't say it's a bad stress, but, you know, it's definitely uh, just looking after them, being there for them, um, being able to support my family. There's some stress that comes with that. So Maurice Donovan Selby cannot afford to smoke and uh, use alcohol heavily or abuse alcohol because, right, I already got one strike against me um, in terms of the stress that I have to deal with. Um, We know, especially as a black man in this country, sort of dealing with some of the things that are currently happening in our society, right? I can't afford much more to add to my plate in terms of risk factors for cardiovascular disease. And so I got to make sure that I'm cognizant of what's going on with my blood pressure. I have to understand, right, as far as being active and out there, getting my heart rate going with regular exercise and movement. Those are going to be things that can help me mitigate these risks of developing heart disease. And as we said, you will not catch me smoking cigarettes. That's just not something that I can engage in because, right, I don't want to develop heart disease or cardiovascular disease. And so those are the things that we really have to understand, ladies and gentlemen, even recreational drug use, especially things like cocaine, um, amphetamines. Those things can put a lot of stress on the heart and harm the heart. And so those are some other things that we just cannot we have to. Uh, deal with. And if you have those problems, you have those habits, there are services for you to work in getting rid of those habits. Now, just real quick before we move on to uh, the next item, I do want to just put a plug in there for regular exercise because this is right among the best investments you can make as far as your time, your energy, even your money, right? In terms of improving your health, this is one of the best things you do. We had Danielle Medina last week joining us to celebrate National Family Health and Fitness 
uh, month, and we also talked about the importance of regular exercise, not only for the individual, but for the family. But I'm going to put it in some other terms and, and, and really just to help us understand the true dollar value, right, of regular exercise. There was a study that came out recently of exercise and Medicare claims. So it looked at the amount of exercise individuals got and looked at their corresponding Medicare claims. And it finds that people who start to exercise, so either before or during their middle ages. So we're talking after 40 years of age, which I'm like, yo, hold up, middle age, 40 years old. That's young. (laughs) I'm like 37. And uh, I guess I'm approaching middle age. I don't know. I don't know whose definition that is. But anyway, right. Essentially saying that uh, for uh, adults, (laughs) let's say over the age of 40. Right. So starting regular exercise before or during middle age, they typically save anywhere from $824 to $1,874 annually on healthcare costs after retirement. And the earlier they get those workouts in, the earlier, right, this is from that study, the earlier individuals really start to establish that routine, regular exercise, they can see even greater savings um, in that department. So, just something to think about, right? I think we, we've definitely talked about the benefits, the physical benefits, the mental benefits of regular exercise, which according to the American Heart Association, they're talking about 150 minutes of moderate exercise each week. If you get up to 300 minutes, you see even more benefits, right? And I think a, talking about a mix between aerobic exercise where you get your heart rate going a little and even resistance training right? All of that will benefit you uh, in the long run. But we've talked about constantly on this program, those benefits, those physical benefits, those mental benefits, getting those endorphins flowing and just feeling so much better. I went for a five mile run this morning and I can't tell you just after completion of the run and as difficult as it can be when I'm done, I feel so great, even with all of the different stressors, the different things that I have to worry about and think about. Um, I just feel so much better after having done that run. Yes, yes, Zora. Yes, that does that for you. Uh, but it's just when we look at right that the physical, the mental benefits. But now we throw in the, the benefits to your pocket in terms of real savings, right? Financial gain from this by saving on your healthcare costs in the future, especially when we talk about retirement, which I don't know about y'all, but I don't want to be worried about (laughs) money as much at that time. When I retire, I want to be chilling, you know, almost carefree and really just enjoying life to the fullest at that point. Well, this is part of that. This is an investment that we can make now in terms of our daily activity, right? Getting our heart going a little bit. And as we said, reaping those physical, the mental and financial benefits of regular exercise. I have to harp on that just because this is, I think, among all the interventions, right? Changing your diet um, gradually and especially in people that just want to do these things overnight. You know, it's very difficult Um, when we talk about our family history and our genetics. We have no control over that stuff. Uh, quitting smoking can be extraordinarily difficult alcohol use um, or moderating that. But, but when we talk about just moving, just getting up and moving, whatever it is, dancing, going for a walk or a hike, or in my case, running, that's something that I've really just learned to, to actually love. Um, and even just playing basketball, joining a league, whatever it may be, getting up and moving, it is among the simplest interventions. And we see just so many profound benefits from that. And so that's why I had to take a a second to just make a plug for regular routine exercise. Get up, get out and move. That is all we have to do. To all the fellas out there, that's what we have to do. We have to make it happen. So let's move on to cancer. Uh, If we start with Lung cancer. According to the CDC in 2019, lung cancer accounted for 74,860 deaths among men. Next was prostate cancer at 31,638. 
Then there's colorectal cancer at 27,674. And then pancreatic cancer at 23,732. So that's the top four cancer killers of men. And let's just start with lung cancer. Major risk factor for development of lung cancer. We've talked about it already, and you're going to hear this continually throughout the program. Smoking, right? Although there has been an uptick in, in the numbers of individuals diagnosed with lung cancer that don't have a history of smoking, smoking is still a major contributor to the number of individuals that come down with lung cancer diagnoses. And as a result of that, the United States Preventive Services Task Force updated its recommendations this year, in March of this year, recommending annual low-dose CT scanning, so computed, computed tomography scanning, starting at age 50 for individuals with a 20-pack year history uh, of smoking. So that, that we're talking about heavy smokers here, right? 20-pack years. If you take the number of packs per day that an individual um, smokes and you multiply that by the total number of years that an individual has smoked, you get their pack years of smoking, right? And uh, so this is, you know, a group of individuals that are smoking heavily, right? Very high risk group when it comes to colon, uh, lung cancer. And that is why this is the recommendation for those individuals over 50. This also applies to individuals that quit within the last 15 years. Now, you do reap benefits from quitting smoking, right? We see changes in your lungs um, and really your overall health that your health improves. When you stop smoking, your body repairs the damage that has been done. But for those individuals that quit, heavy smokers that quit within the last 15 years, you're older than 50, you might benefit from a CT scan looking for or surveilling for cancer, for lung cancer. When we talk about prostate screening, you know your body, right? This is the second leading cause of death, cancer deaths among men in this country. And so you know your body, <laughs> you know your body. So watch out for symptoms of prostate disease, right? Which could indicate a problem, including prostate cancer. Um, and this is because the United States uh, Preventive Services Task Force gave a level C recommendation. So this is essentially saying that the evidence is not there that Individuals will truly benefit from uh, formal prostate cancer screening, which really is a blood test, something called prostate-specific antigen test or the PSA test. I think a lot of people have probably heard of that. A lot of men have heard of that, especially if you go to a uh, medical professional on a regular basis. This is something that probably came up in the conversation, and that's because of this Level C recommendation where PSA screening in men aged 55 to 69 years of age and it states that this is a decision that's really up to the individual, right? We really must think about the risks and potential benefits of PSA screening. Um, again, a level C recommendation, and that's because the evidence for individuals truly benefiting from this is not there. It's not like that level B recommendation, right? Where it is pretty solid is, is some good evidence behind screening for lung cancer in heavy smokers above the age of 50, right? And so this is just something that we, we really need to think about. And the reason why we have to think about it, because um, if we discover something with that PSA level being elevated, right, it could lead to additional tests, even procedures that might not be uh, 100% necessary um, as the prostate specific antigen can be elevated for other reasons that are not necessarily related to prostate cancer. So it's something to to think about. And I would say that the best way to go about this is to have a conversation with your medical professional, whoever it is that you see for regular medical care. That's a theme in this show tonight, too. No smoking. And we need men to get regular medical care. And we need to see primary care physicians uh, or nurse practitioners or physicians assistants, somebody that is looking after our health on a regular basis so that we can have conversations about PSA testing. Okay. In addition to all the other things, the high blood pressure screenings and checking our glucose to make sure that we got that under control, our cholesterol, and so on. And so I'm going to move on to 
Colon and rectal cancer. United States Preventive Services Task Force recommends colorectal cancer screening in all adults aged 50 to 75 years of age. That is a level A recommendation. I'm going to repeat that. Level A recommendation. This is the best evidence out there saying that individuals benefit from colon cancer screening, colorectal cancer screening uh, between 50 and 75 years of age. And there is a level B recommendation for screening of adults aged 45 to 49. Um, I think another thing to really understand is that we've talked about this on this program, screening in individuals with a family history, especially first degree relatives. So your brother had colon cancer or sister or your parents, right? 10 years from when that individual was diagnosed, that's when you need your colonoscopy. And yes, Zora, that's why dad dad got his colonoscopy because he knows that his dad had colon cancer. And so he was due to get his screening at 36 years because my father was diagnosed um, or actually succumbed, unfortunately, from, from that disease at 46. Yes, girl, I did that for you, mama. Okay, I know I did that for you. And finally, we have pancreatic cancer. Unfortunately, no uh, screening recommendations on that um, at this time, ladies and gentlemen, but understanding some other risk factors. So uh, heavy alcohol use, um, recurrent, especially something called recurrent pancreatitis, um, which is essentially uh, inflammation of the pancreas, especially if you have something like chronic pancreatitis, which is usually attributed to um, alcohol use. There are other causes, but alcohol is a major risk factor for that right? Those individuals have a higher risk of pancreatic cancer. And so monitoring your symptoms, um, so abdominal pain, inability to uh, eat or appetite changes, drastic weight loss, especially if you have this gnawing pain in the upper abdomen, those are risk factors that we need to be mindful of or symptoms that we need to be mindful of. And that might warrant evaluation for, uh, to make sure it's not something like pancreatic cancer. Also just being mindful of family history, you have a family history of pancreatic cancer is something to think about and make sure you have that conversation with your medical professional, right? To talk about risks and strategies to look out for that uh, going forward. And uh, just want to go back to the prostate for one more thing, because we did talk about the symptoms. Another thing to be mindful of. So blood in the urine, a lot of difficulty urinating, especially if that's something that happened to you uh, very suddenly. You're having, you know, more difficulty creating a stream or maintaining a stream uh, for the men out there. Um, just weight loss, uh, profound weight loss a, without, you know, exercising or dieting or unintentional weight loss. Another major thing to look out for. Um, and also just uh, severe pain, bone pains. This could be related to uh, prostate cancer. And so we just have to be mindful of those symptoms. All right, Zora. Zora said enough of the uh, prostate cancer, moveon.com. So let's move on to the next category, taking men off of this planet, accidental deaths and injury. Now, this one is huge. This is the number three cause of death, premature death in men in this country. And when we look at unintentional injuries. It's actually the number one cause of death in individuals between the ages of one and 44 years of age. We're talking about a cost to the American healthcare system of $70 billion a year. And this is a major, I think one interesting thing about accidental injuries is that this is a, an, a huge opportunity because this is something that I would argue in many cases is 100% preventable. Right. When we talk about unintentional injuries, uh, we're talking about both non-fatal and fatal. When we talk about the risks, men are twice as likely as women to die from an unintentional injury. Most common causes of these fatal injuries include overdoses, motor vehicle accidents and falls. And most recently, we've sort of seen all around the country the increase in firearm related injuries and penetrating injuries all throughout the country. So for some reason or many factors, really, things have gotten a little bit more violent as well to sort of add to all of the things that we need to think about. And so really, man to man, uh, all the men out there, 
we just have to be more mindful of some of the behaviors, right? Um, as far as risk reduction for ourselves. And so when we talk about, for instance, motor vehicle safety, seat belts are <laughs> in vogue now, right? If you don't wear a seatbelt, I mean, I kind of think uh, many people look at you kind of funny, like, wait, you don't wear your seatbelt? Um, it's a huge cultural shift from even 25, 30 years ago. I remember it was not uncommon for an adult to not wear a seatbelt when going on a trip, any trip, whether it's long, short. But now I think that's the culture. I mean, if you don't see the person buckle up next to you, yes, you should call that person out. And one, for all the individuals out there, right, we should be mindful. We have to wear our seatbelts. And we're talking a, about really just a, an additional layer of protection. I mean, we've definitely seen improvements in the design of motor vehicles to make them more safe uh, to you know, if we are in accidents, which, you know, in many cases, there are accidents that happen, uh, but the vehicles, the way that they're designed, right, they are designed with safety in mind to keep you as safe as possible. And that seatbelt is one extra layer of protection for you. Uh, in addition to the airbags, in addition to the different alloys and materials that are used to, you know, decrease the impact of forces that are exerted on your body. Uh, from the impact. Well, another layer of protection is wearing that seatbelt and just being careful behind the wheel. Can't tell you, I mean, <laughs> definitely saw this in New York, but I definitely see it down here in the South uh, as far as people's driving habits. And I think we definitely have an opportunity to do better in that regard uh, as well. And so going back to the basics, man, think about when we were trying to pass that test to get our license, right? To get our permit so that we can practice driving on the road. Well, going back to some of those, there's reasons why those books were written that way. There's reasons why you had to observe certain rules and regulations on the road. That, to a large degree, is based upon safety. These are best practices for driving, right? And if you're having some difficulty with that, I mean, some of these habits, right, are ingrained in us from being on the road for a number of years, having our license and doing our thing. You know, not having accidents, thankfully, but I think some of us can improve, including myself, right? And we can all possibly benefit from a defensive driving class or another class that can really just give us some additional tools and strategies to be as safe as possible on a road. And the same thing goes with firearms. I mean, we've definitely seen an increase all throughout the country in a number of firearms sales. Uh, for many reasons, I mean, the anxiety out there and fear that individuals have, unfortunately, this is something that I don't think is going to go away just in terms of our political climate and some of the things that we see happening around us. But if you are considering buying a firearm, again, right, there are guidelines, there are rules and regulations and safety things in mind that can help make this as safe as possible. Uh, to have in a home or however you're going to use this, um, or at least just to have it for your protection, well, you can do so in a way that makes it as safe as possible. Even coming down to just operating these types of devices, right? Training, you can benefit from training from a professional that can show you how to handle this, these devices as safely as possible to minimize as much as possible the risk of accidental injury. Now, I could take it to the next level and make this a political show and say, hey, we need to get rid of the things altogether. But that's that's not the purpose of the program. Right. Uh, this is Health in Harlem. So we are just trying to give you information to help you be as safe as possible in that regard. And now in talking about accidental injuries and deaths, there's no way we cannot talk about this without talking about the use of substances. in their role in these type of injuries. And so if we just start from alcohol, well, this is this pertains to many different topics, right, that we've discussed so far on the program. And so let's just talk about alcohol use for a second. According to the Global Burden of Disease study, this actually took place uh, from 1990 to 2016. Um, basically, they analyzed the levels of alcohol use and its health effects 
in individuals in 195 countries all throughout the world. So from 1990 to 2016, talking about 26 years, they observed uh, multiple, I mean, thousands of people all across the world to see what, right, looking at the levels of alcohol use, at what point do we see, right, a level of alcohol use that does not lead to possible problems in the body? And their conclusion was that really (laughs) zero. I mean, if you want to minimize your risks from alcohol, and we're talking about all the risks, accidental injuries to chronic liver disease and hypertension, all of these things, then abstain from drinking alcohol, period. There's no quote unquote safe level of alcohol. Now, this was a little controversial when it came out because we know that our guidelines, as as far as what we have from the U.S. Department of Agriculture, right? Uh, in terms of the safe consumption of alcohol, um, essentially, we're talking about a glass of day for a woman or one drink per day for a woman, two drinks per day per minute. And this is where it gets a little difficult because a drink is not, I think, what many of us think of when we talk about the amount of alcohol that they're talking about. A drink is five ounces of wine, 12 ounces of beer, so a cup and a half of beer. Uh, that contains 5% alcohol or one shot of liquor. Now, we all know that there's many mixed drinks. There's some craft beers that have a higher alcohol content. So these are things that we need to be mindful of, right? Um, And everything in moderation. I will admit I drink alcohol socially, uh, and I am mindful of the amounts of alcohol that I consume. Is this something that I'm doing daily? No. Is this something that I'm doing weekly? No. Uh, Is this something that I will be engaging in for Father's Day weekend? Will I have a drink or two with my family, my friends? Yes. Uh, But this is not something that I'm carrying out day to day. This is certainly not something that when I'm jumping behind a wheel to get to and fro, right, to get to all of these events and to to be there with my family. Well, I want to be there with my family. So this is not something that I'm going to do and then jump behind the wheel. So minimizing our use of alcohol, minimizing our use, not using really. So not, I'm not talking about minimizing our use, but right. Uh, if you're going to be driving somewhere, especially long distance, then, hey, let's really try to keep it. Um, I would even say even below what are considered the minimum amounts uh, that can be consumed, right, uh, according to our governmental agencies. Um, let's try to abstain totally if we're going to be taking any trips or operating any heavy machinery, right? And any other mind-altering substances, um, those can have effects on our coordination, our motor skills, um, even our judgment when we are on the road. And so that's why this is something that we really need to be mindful of and um, just really cut it out, period. I hate to, I, I said, I didn't want this to be a lecture. Well, this is the part where I have to kind of lecture in that Right. Um, I said this is a huge opportunity as far as accidental deaths, because a lot of these deaths can be totally prevented, 100 percent prevented. Not everybody can go through life and not develop cancer. Right. There are some individuals that are going to develop cancer. There are some individuals where no matter what they do, they might develop diabetes, especially when we talk, talk about things like family history and genetics. But no one has to die of a car accident. secondary to alcohol use, right? Or as, as something that precipitated a motor vehicle accident or an accidental firearm injury because of alcohol use, right? Impaired judgment, playing around or showing off a gun. Um, did you know there was one in the barrel? That's how these things happen. And that's why we really just have to be cognizant and mindful of how we, how we behave and sort of use these substances. Now, that kind of segues into our Next item, as far as the leading causes of deaths in men, and that is chronic lower respiratory illnesses. Chiefly among them is chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD. Probably heard of this term before. This encompasses conditions such as chronic bronchitis, as well as emphysema. And this is essentially a disease primarily, chiefly caused by smoking, smoking of cigarettes. Cigarettes with their 4,000 chemicals contain a lot of irritants. They contain a lot of chemicals that 
lead to chronic inflammation. This chronic inflammation can lead to literal damage, structural and even microscopic damage, right, at the cellular level, damage to the lungs that ultimately lead to conditions such as chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. Unfortunately, right, the, the reason why this is chronic is because, especially after many, many years of smoking, this damage in many cases is irreversible. And also, it can impact other systems in the body, including the cardiovascular system, can make one more prone to infections, decreasing right, one's immunity and immune responses. It's just so many things that can sort of result from smoking and the development of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. And once we really examine this, then we see why it becomes such a major contributor in terms of the deaths of men in this country. And obviously the premature deaths, right? Because these are individuals that without this condition that would live probably many more years, many more productive, great years that they can enjoy with their loved ones. So I think we have another opportunity here in stopping smoking, right? And we talk about the risk factors uh, of chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, the major risk factor being smoking. This is something that we can intervene upon, right? The genetics we can't do, right? There's certain genetic conditions that can lead to COPD. Uh, There are certain, sometimes family history that can contribute and lead to COPD, right? And that goes back to the genetics. But there are many individuals out there that do not have a genetic predisposition to developing chronic obstructive pulmonary disease. They are smokers and they develop this disease by smoking. And that is the opportunity. We can stop smoking. Uh, And in some cases, right, um, there are reversible changes. There are changes that can take place. Once you stop the smoking, once you stop that chronic inflammation, we can see improvement in individuals' vital capacity, their lungs, right, their ability to breathe, their reserve. Uh, We see improvements in that. Their pulmonary function tests, all of those things can improve. But the sooner we stop smoking, that's when we'll be able to see that improvement. Even for individuals with chronic obstructive pulmonary disease already diagnosed, they can still have significant improvement, substantial improvement by not smoking. Less hospitalizations, right? Less worsening of their disease because by smoking, you only continue to add on to the damage that's already done. And so a major opportunity by stopping smoking. Stop smoking cigarettes. And there are many services out there available. Um, a lot of them free. There are tons of support programs. There are, even if you don't buy into to those things, there are ways in which you can do it. Even cold turkey, right? Strategies that you can implement to break this habit. And so, you know, hopefully I, I want to include some of these into our show notes, but definitely a major opportunity for those smokers out there. Um, and also you get the bonus, right? Not only do you decrease your chances of developing chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, but also many other diseases. A lot of them we've talked about already, the heart disease, the stroke, um, all of those things, high blood pressure, you can significantly lower your risk of developing those diseases as well. And then finally, right, if you don't buy any of that, again, consider the financial benefit because I know some people want more tangible outcomes, right? Well, you'll have more money in your pocket by not forking over, you know, however many. I can't, I don't know how how much they cost offhand, but I know they're expensive, right? Because I hear people complain about how expensive cigarettes are uh, and they're only going to become more expensive. And so cutting that out will save you so much money and not to even talk about the money that you'll save as far as the health benefits, right? The decreased healthcare costs, that's going to be more money in your pocket in the end as well. So stop smoking. That is a major, major key. Now, there are other individuals that can develop chronic obstructive pulmonary disease uh, from their occupations, other environmental exposures, including secondhand smoke, right? This is something that we really need to be mindful of uh, as well. So looking, right, and and really trying to find ways to be engaged in what's happening around us, what's in our community, uh, whether it is plants that are causing pollution. Heck, we can even talk about our work environment, right? If we are in a state or a city that does not have laws prohibiting smoking indoors, that is something that we need to bring to our 
legislators and say, hey, this is something that is affecting my health and I want something done about it. There are ways to go about doing that. And so just being more politically active, we can get some of these changes that will in the end make all of us healthier, all of us. And so we've covered quite a bit, ladies and gentlemen, uh, in this special for Men's Health Week. And I just want to give some last tips as far as really optimizing our health uh, as men. And so going back to Dr. Louise Aronson, again, this is the professor of geriatrics and author of Elderhood. Uh, He basically laid it out for us, right? And aside from getting more exercise, eating more fresh fruits and vegetables and whole grains, lean meats and fish, one thing that he really emphasized, especially as we get older, is maintaining, right, that social engagement with friends, family, being in community groups, volunteer work, all of these things. And this has been shown again again and again, um, the proven benefit as far as our physical health, but also our mental health. Also, another big thing is to really just make sure that we have regular medical care. I don't care who it is you check in with. It could be your primary care physician. It could be a physician assistant, a nurse practitioner. It could be your urologist, maybe even your chiropractor, right? If they're giving you some evidence-based ways in which you can stay healthy, screening you for high blood pressure, screening you for diabetes, checking your cholesterol, these are the ways that in which you can maximize and live the healthiest life possible. That's how you do it. That's how it's done. That's why the women, right, they're living longer. And sometimes they might be sicker. They might have some conditions that they develop uh, getting older. But guess what? They got the checkup. They figured it out early. They came up with a plan and strategy to treat those conditions, right? And that's why they outlive us. That is why they continue, even in in the face of illness, many times continue to thrive, right? And live happy, productive lives. That's because they get those things taken care of. They mitigate risks, right? Um, Do not consume alcohol as much as we do uh, as men and end up in accidents or having accidental injuries. Um, Even safer driving practices. We might honk (laughs) at a woman on the road in front of us because we're trying to get go, go faster than them. But guess what? She's probably driving safer. And so so you will have a, less, a lower likelihood of having an accident that leads to serious disability or even death. And so it's just keeping those things in mind. And really, the, the way I want you to think about this, ladies and gentlemen, going forward as we wrap up, right? You should not be taking care of your car better than your body. You take your car in for a regular tune-up or a checkup, right? You get those tires rotated. You get the oil changed. You get it cleaned every couple of weeks and it's sparkling out there looking beautiful in the sun. Well, let's think about your body in that way. When's the last time you took your body in, right? Yourself to get your tune up or your checkup to make sure that you are optimized, that you are functioning at the highest capacity. That's what you do for your car. We got to do it for your body. You should not know the roster of your local sports team (laughs) better than your cholesterol levels or your medical history or family history, right? If you know the full roster of the New York Giants, but you don't know your medications or what they're for, then there's something that we could be worked on there, right? Maybe a little bit more energy. You can shift that energy, that knowledge, that attention, and focus it more on these health outcomes that can ultimately lead you to enjoy more games, right? You can see more Giants and see that that draft pick develop into a superstar and retire um, and talk about that person with your grandchildren. Well, guess what? That's what we want. That's where I think we should be aiming for. And so with that said, we're going to close out, ladies and gentlemen. I thank you for tuning into Health in Harlem. And the only thing that we ask is that you just continue to listen and also to share what you've heard on this program. Also, I want to shout out um, really just all the fathers out there. I want to wish you all a very happy Father's Day. I want to wish you a, a tremendously healthy Men's Health Week. And I'm hoping that this can set the foundation for all of us going forward to just right, really optimize our health as much as possible, to pay attention to all of these things that we've talked about. 
and also to the women out there this show is also for you because i know there's a man in your life that you care deeply about that could use this information and so hopefully you stayed with us up to this point but that this show is for you too so that you can uh, inspire and really just educate a, a man in your life that you want to be around that you want to be healthy continue to enjoy your years with and ladies and gentlemen uh, also this show is dedicated to the memory of my father it is his birthday today june 18th and just want to really just get my love out there for him and i I do use him as my inspiration as well right and being there for my daughters and being a great father for them that's my why that's why i do what i do and so with that said ladies and gentlemen this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas, Harlem. Take care of yourself.